Hi there and welcome to another Rossler podcast. My name is Todd Fraser. Amid the pandemic pandemonium, intensive care researchers have performed miracles, producing research at unprecedented rates that helps clinicians like me at the bedside care for their patients. Joining me today are two shining examples. Critical care dietitians and researchers Leanne Chappell and Emma Ridley recently presented their work on the nutritional status of COVID-19 patients at the 2021 ANZICS Clinical Trials Group meeting in Noosa. Leanne, Emma, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Doug. Why focus on um, COVID patients? Why are they potentially at increased risk of nutritional issues um, during their illness? Uh, yeah, so I guess this is something we probably didn't really want to know anything about, but unfortunately last year um, both Leanne and I had a couple of chats and decided that um, we were probably well-placed to start doing some work relatively quickly in this area. And, um, you know, like many people around the world, but in Australia we really had to pivot quite quickly to think about this idea. Um, and it sort of started with us working on a guideline, to be honest, for Australia and New Zealand um, looking at... Um, nutrition practice and actually trying to give some guidance to clinicians because like everyone we were in the dark we had no idea what was really going on so we felt we need to put some guidance together and then that evolved into a bit of a research idea and so what we were seeing initially in initial reports was that patients were reporting um, GI related symptoms before they came into hospital and that still remains a feature um, today that's being reported um, fairly frequently um, and so that for us just made us think well what condition are these patients coming in then um, from a nutritional point of view if they've been at home unwell and quite unwell from what the reports we were getting and then they're getting very very sick and a portion of them are coming to ICU, what condition are they going to be in? Um, and so that's where it really uh, came to us that we thought maybe they would have a significant metabolic response. We thought they might have been at home not eating and drinking for a period of time. Um, we also knew that in the ICU they were starting to have gastrointestinal problems um, with tolerance and um, they were very hard to ventilate initially and there was lots of challenges with that. So that has nutritional implications. So we just felt, well, there's something going on here and clinicians need a bit of um, information. And so we could pivot quickly to try and get this idea up and uh, with the guideline, collect some data as well. Is there any information out there, Emma, from overseas about what their experience has been thus far? Yeah, so there's starting to be a few things trickle through. Um, look, it's really, I guess it's hard to comment. Um, it's not like a lot of the other research that's been done where we have some definitive answers, like from your remap cap type platforms and things like that. It's more uh, just reports on what has been happening. Um, and so we're certainly having reports around patients having issues with eating, um, issues with appetite, definitely reporting the diarrhea-related symptoms. Um, particularly early on when they're, they're coming in. And then within the ICU, early on there were reports of gastrointestinal intolerance and patients being difficult to feed, certainly hyperglycemia um, as an issue. But it seems as time's gone on, and I think as the medical management has probably changed and caught up, some of those nutrition concerns initially have um, changed or reduced. So I don't know that that's as much of a problem now as we initially saw, but I think that's very much related to the way the medical community has responded, obviously, um, um, our doctors and nurses are managing things better now because they've got the experience so that flows onto everything else. I think just to chime in there as well, it does depend on the wave um, and the number of patients yeah. that are in the hospital at the time. So yeah. um, I think, and, and, you know, the type of population that's coming in. So I think different countries are experiencing different 
um, clinical symptoms as part of that. Yeah, for sure. And probably the location, I think, as well. I guess one of the things we have realised is um, get building on what Leanne was saying because of the locations as well and it, the responses have been very different. And so we are seeing, you know, different reports coming out of different places. So as we have more information, that'll probably be very interesting to see as to what the differences are. And as Leanne has said, some places have been so overwhelmed that, you know, they're just doing their best. But um, in terms of how they've managed the patients, you know, we're not sure how, how that's going to impact them. Together, your group has looked at uh, putting together, as you as we've talked about, um, a project to look at this in the local context. Um, what sort of patients are you looking at as part of that study? So um, we have linked with Sprint Starry, which is um, the national project that's collecting data on these COVID patients. So it was really good to be able to link with them. Um, and so we're looking at COVID positive patients who have been in Sprint Starry. Um, and we uh, were able to get most of the hospitals that participating um, for our nutrition study, which is excellent, um, who have a significant portion of patients that we thought might um, come through. Some of the smaller sites we weren't able to link in with, but um, we're looking at patients who have had a COVID positive diagnosis, who have been in ICU and survived, so been transferred to the ward. Um, and we're collecting a small amount of information on, just on their ICU stay, just as a quick profile about what might have happened. But and most of our focus has been on the post-ICU period, on the ward-based period um, and the pe period after ICU, um, just to try and capture what might be happening. Um, I guess we, we kind of felt that some of the ICU stuff would be fairly well covered, probably in other populations. Um, and we really wanted to understand what was happening to these patients after. And the post-ICU period is a focus for Leanne and I in terms of our interest. Um, and particularly, these patients were staying a long time. If they survived, they were staying a long time. They'd been really sick. And we felt from a nutrition point of view that that probably would be quite interesting. And um, we would be able to understand a lot about what might have happened to them if we extend out the, the data collection. Emma, what's the sort of data set that you'll be looking at as part of this? So it's mostly around nutrition practice and provision. So it's, it is it, what sort of nutrition the patients received, how they were fed, but it's also around practice, like how many times were they seen? Did they have a nutrition assessment? Um, did they have a nutrition screen? Were they at risk of malnutrition? Um, many of those process things. And then also some patient level information around were um, their reports of nutrition impacting symptoms. So did the patient report they were unable to eat for any reason or did the nursing staff or medical team document that they were unable to eat for any reason. So I guess it's a pretty broad brush because unfortunately we didn't have funding for the project. So we're very grateful to everyone that's contributed data because it really is a love job as we call it. Um, and we had to get it going pretty quickly because um, as we all know, this was evolving rapidly. So it's a broad brush look. I would say it's not going into huge detail in, in anything in particular, but it still probably is one of the larger data sets that I'm aware of in, in that's been collecting this sort of information. Um, and certainly, even though I say it's a broad brush, the level of detail I don't know is being collected in other places. Leanne might um, know of any others, but um, I'm pretty sure we'll have a fairly decent data set. And although um, we didn't have huge waves here in Australia, and we're very lucky for that, we're still going to have data on a good portion of the patients that we had in Australia. So it will tell the Australian story of what happened from a nutrition perspective um, to our patients, which I think is really important. And not just for COVID patients, but for future pandemics, you know, it gives us an indication of how we were able to pivot services and what happened in that process and whether 
it worked or didn't work or what happened for our patients in that time. So I think that's important information too. I think the other thing um, that's important to note is we designed this study back in February, March last year. So it was really before we knew what what COVID was going to look like in Australia. So we designed it to be all the data to be collected retrospectively. So if we got massive amounts of patients that the data collection could happen at a later time. Um, and we've been collecting this data at all the sites from March the 1st last year to March the 1st this year. So um, it, yeah, lots of sites have different amounts of patients that have come through, but all data that can be collected um, from the past. It's been quite incredible to see the research community uh, organise itself so rapidly and get this important information out to the hands of clinicians at the bedside so quickly. Leanne, you had the opportunity to present uh, the data that you've collected so far at the Noosa conference. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so the data that I presented was really just some preliminary work, I'll get my words out, um, that was looking at the the nine Australian sites that we had participate from here that had patients admitted um, throughout the COVID pandemic. Um, We do have some linkages with Ireland and Brazil that we're hoping to um, collate with for the final um, project results. But the the results at the moment were just patients that were admitted from the 1st of March to the 1st of September last year. Um, And some patients were still remaining in hospital at the time that we presented. So obviously they are a long stay population. So um, there's a little bit of missing data because of that. Um, so overall, we there were 100 patients that were included over that time period, which is quite a nice round number, which is good. Um, we included 94 patients in our preliminary analysis um, because of some of the missing data and remaining in hospital. Um, and really looking compared to other ICU studies, they were relatively um, well population, I think. They were quite young. Um, so the, the mean age was 58 years Um, 28% were female, which is probably a bit higher than what we're used to in a a general ICU population. Um, And only 20% were mechanically ventilated on day one. Um, So I think that um, given that ICU may have been more equipped to deal with these patients or um, we didn't know how that they they would respond or that they do crash relatively quickly, I think we saw them being admitted um, to ICU at a lower threshold than we might normally see when, when we're not in a pandemic. Um, I guess in terms of BMI, they, the mean BMI was 30, so overweight, which is what we normally see in ICU patients as well, even the mechanically ventilated ones. Um, and, and that had been reported in the literature before that these patients were more at risk of um, being admitted to ICU if they did have a higher BMI. Um, and then the length of stay was around six days in ICU um, with a, an interquartile range between three and 17. So um, when they did stay, they were there for a relatively long period of time, given that they, the, the majority weren't mechanically ventilated. Normally you'd see those patients move out, you know, within 24, 48 hours um, onto the ward. Um, I guess some of the other data that we looked at, um, so that that baseline characteristics we all got um, from our collaboration with Sprint Sari, which was great because it meant that our sites had to collect a lot less data for the the nutrition um, sections. We also saw that on ICU admission, quite a lot of patients had GI symptoms. Um, So diarrhoea was present in 28% of the patients, vomiting and nausea in just over 20%. Um, and then the loss of taste and smell that's been reported in the literature quite a lot as well. Um, so really, we expect these patients to have some nutritional problems given, given those symptoms from the start. 
Um, some of the other interesting things from our data set were that the majority of patients actually received oral intake while they're in ICU. So only um, 40% were enterally fed, which is a lot lower than what we're used to. Um, whether that might be around placement of nasogastric tubes and the challenges associated with that with um, this population, or um, just because they weren't mechanically ventilated, we didn't see them um, maybe needing or, or having a tube placed for enteral feeding. Um, and one of the other things that was different, I guess, to what we expected is overseas, we were seeing a lot of reports of these patients needing to be placed prone. Um, whereas in our population, that didn't happen overly often. Um, and when it did, most of those patients were fed nasogastrically. Um, so we were seeing lots of reports of the need for duodenal feeding or um, yeah, post-pyloric feeding to help assist with tolerance. Um, but our population seemed to be relatively tolerant of the formula that we were providing them. Um, one thing we didn't collect was information around prokinetics or what other strategies might have been used to help with that. Um, so that would be interesting to look further into. So what are some of the take-home points in terms of the nutritional outcomes of these patients? What do we know about how they fare after the ICU? Um, yeah, so a lot of our information was around nutrition impact symptoms. Um, so we saw that 50% of patients had symptoms that would affect nutrition intake um, within the first seven days post-ICU. So things like a reduced appetite, diarrhea, and also swallowing problems. Um, so they were very common. And only 40% actually received oral nutrition support post-ICU. Um, so a lot of our data was around the nutrition interventions that they received, which um, were relatively low given the number of symptoms that they reported that may have affected impact, um, appetite or, or intake. Um, one of the, the challenging things with this, because it was re retrospective and oral intake data is very difficult to collect. Um, as Emma and I both know from previous work we've done, um, actually quantifying how much nutrition intake these patients had would have been extremely difficult. Um, no one was out there with a set of scales or getting nurses to do food intake charts during pandemic would have been um, a little bit too much of a big ask, I think. Um, but we did ask um, from well, the, the data collectors to look at the notes and see if there was any reason why they suspect patients may have not met nutritional requirements. Um, and 59% of, of the patients, it was stated that they did think that they would have inadequate energy or protein intake from the documentation. Um, and 50% had the nutrition impact symptoms, as I said. So it's likely that these patients do struggle from a nutrition point of view, particularly post-ICU just add um, it does support some of the literature in the non-COVID patients as well so um, what we're starting to see with patients that are just eating orally is there is a fairly high proportion of these issues around eating um, and so I guess while we couldn't quantify it it's kind of telling a similar story that in this post-ICU period there are issues that we don't really understand a lot about yet and we don't know how it's impacting our patients but it's a similar story so I guess that some consistency is good in that regard. Mm. I think the other thing that's important is um, we did collect what sort of nutrition interventions patients received on hospital discharge um, and nearly 60% of patients received some sort of dietary education so it's clear that these patients need nutrition support even after they're leaving hospital and these patients stay a long time in hospital um, and even 40% were referred to a dietitian in the community. Um, so a lot of the research in ICU, you know, respective of COVID or not, um, 
they look at nutrition in ICU. A few studies have looked at post-ICU within the acute ward, but very few have looked at nutrition support after patients are leaving the hospital system. Um, so showing how many of those are still needing nutrition support after um, hospital discharge, I think, is a really important area for us to start moving into. So question to you both, what's your gut feeling, if you'll pardon the pun, um, about the, the relative dysfunction of nutrition in COVID patients compared with, with what we know about standard ICU patients? Are they a different cohort in any way? I think it's really hard to, to tell. I, um, and I really do think it would depend on the, the, the hospital or the country. Um, I think we were really lucky in, in most sites, our COVID patient numbers were relatively manageable. And so we could provide optimal nutrition support or very similar to what our normal practice would have been. Um, obviously, there was a lot of stress with, within staff and that the unknown made things maybe not work as smoothly as they normally would. Um, but I think our practices would have been more closely aligned with clinical practice normally compared to other sites. I think um, I would just add, uh, I think the maybe the actual process, disease process around nutrition and the impact is not that different um, in some respects. But I think what has been different and what's caused the problems is um, the changes in systems. So initially, like the changes in food service systems and the fact that we couldn't deliver meals to the patient bedside, for example, that has had a real impact on um, some of our patients in terms of being able to get their meals, be able to have adequate nutrition um, and being able to feed themselves, for example, if they can't um, do that and they need set up help, but there's no one to do that for them. Those sorts of process things, I think um, it's easy to forget about those things until things start going wrong. Um, and I think in, in our institution at the Alford, we really noticed those things um, after the first wave. Once we had modified some of our processes, we thought some, some of these things are not quite working and it was to do with all of those process related things. So I think that's the key um, difference is that uh, the, the processes change and that has to be thought through. Mm. I think another thing that would be interesting to look at is um, a lot of our sites also participated in the functional recovery study that was led by Carol Hodgson. Um, and so we you know, have potential to compare some of our nutritional data to some of the functional recovery outcomes as well to see yeah, how these patients fare compared to other non-COVID admissions. Now, only 40% of the, the patients in this data set were mechanically ventilated. Is there a plan to analyse the data in that specific group? Yeah, so we have spoken about that, that um, comparing those patients that were mechanically ventilated at some point versus those that were non-invasive mechanical ventilation or self-ventilation. Um, I think this is something that um, from a... Uh, Emma and I have discussed this and we have a PhD student at the moment who's going to be doing some work around non-invasive. I think practices really changed and patients aren't ventilated as, as quickly or um, the, the th threshold for ventilation is much higher than it used to be. Um, so I think that's a real unknown in how those patients are fed um, and something that we definitely want to look at for this um, data set for in general ICU patients as well. There's two specific subgroups of patients that it would seem from the outside is quite challenging to manage nutrition, that being patients who are prone ventilated and also those who are on non-invasive ventilation for a prolonged period of time. What are some of the challenges that you face in practice and how do you address them? 
I can start, Leanne, if you want, and you can yeah, add in. Um, so I think with prone um, positioning, if, if your site is not used to doing it, it can seem really, really overwhelming. But I, I would just encourage people to see if they can approach it just like a, a regular patient, really. And the only um, things I would caution is that you probably need to aspirate the gastric tube before you put that patient prone and give them time to settle in. But if things are looking fine, once you've put them into position and they're ventilating well and you're happy, you can just enterally feed them as per normal. Um, and we should be doing that as well, because if they're in that position, you don't want to be starving them for prolonged periods. Um, and then in terms of non-invasive, I think that's a real challenge. Um, and, you know, I, I, see, I find that a challenge myself because you can understand if you have to intubate quickly you don't want a patient with a full stomach but also if they're sitting there like that for days on end what do we do um, and I think we don't have a lot of data around that I really think that is a gap that we need to understand how do we provide nutrition and what do we do and if they sit there without any oral intake for five days um, is that putting them at risk I don't know we don't have the answers to that Mm. Um, so yeah just to add on to that I think with the the prone positioning um, one thing that we really tried to highlight in the guidelines that Emma um, Kate Fetterplace and I led for Australia New Zealand was getting sites to think about what their normal practice was and what they felt comfortable doing so for these patients maybe putting in a postpyloric tube would be the most effective um, management strategy but if your site doesn't have access to that or if that takes a you know a long time to to coordinate then supplemental PN or, or feeding, you know, more when they're actually not prone might be a more effective strategy. So um, yeah, just making sure that sites aren't going outside of their normal scope, I think. So they're still practicing safely. Um, and then with non-invasive, I think um, talking to a lot of my intensivist colleagues, I think these patients are often seen as less sick or nutrition may not be as important. They're generally more historically stay a short length of time. They don't tend to get um, enteral feeding tubes um, from, from my experience anyway. Um, and I think in ICU, we probably don't monitor oral intake as well as, as what we should, even the way we practice as dietitians, we probably tend to focus on the mechanically ventilated patients. And if we get to the ones that are eating, then, then that's all well and good, but often we don't. Um, so I think the first stage and something that my group um, are trying to look at at the moment is just trying to characterise how long these patients are actually receiving um, non-invasive, what, what route of nutrition they receive and, and how dietetic sort of support is provided over that time and what their outcomes are as well. If they stay for three days, they go to the ward for two and then they're home, um, then maybe nutrition's not as necessary. But if they're going to be a long-stay cohort, then I think we need to start thinking more carefully about what we do for those patients. Emma, Leanne, thank you very much for joining us yet again on the podcast and for your hard work in bringing this important information to clinicians who need it. Thanks, Thanks so much, Todd. Us. I'd just like to thank all the sites as well. As Emma mentioned, this was done without any funding and a lot of our sites were very new to research that um, we did throw them in the deep end a little bit with the data collection um, and obviously Sprint Sari for their collaborations as well. So, well said. Congratulations thank and thanks again. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. All of our great podcast interviews, including this series from the ANSIC CTG meeting in Noosa, along with hundreds of modules, quizzes and articles, are all freely available through our app. Download My Osler wherever you get your apps or visit our web version at oslacommunity.com.